the schizo knows how to leave. He is made departure under something as simple as being born or dying. But at the same time, his journey is strangely stationary in place. He does not speak of another world. He is not from another world. Even when he is displacing himself in space, his journey in an intensity around the desiring machine that is erected here and remains here. For here is the desert propagated by our world and also by the new earth and the machine that hums around which the schizos revolve, planets for a new sun. These men of desire, or do they not yet exist, are like Zarathustra. They know incredible sufferings, vertigos, and sickness. They have their specters. They must reinvent each gesture. But such a man produces himself as a free man, irresponsible, solitary, and joyous, finally able to say and do something simple in his own name without asking permission, a desire lacking nothing, a flux that overcomes barriers and codes, a name that no longer designates any ego whatever. He has simply ceased being afraid of becoming mad. He experiences and lives himself as the sublime sickness that will no longer affect him. Here, what would a psychiatrist be worth? The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machine Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with today's discussion of Anti-Oedipus Chapter 2, Sections 6 through 9, just want you guys to know that we have a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Send us a buck a month. That would be great and help. Cooper, what were you thinking about with this passage? I, I think it's a great passage to start with. Obviously, it's part of that, it's got part of that literary flair that you were describing a little bit. And what jumped out at you? I mean, I just think this is, I don't know, this is really, it, it's hard to take any way, anything too concrete, but I just feel like the vibe of this, I don't know, the blueprint that this lays out just is, is one of, in, it's an inspiration, I think, for someone like myself. Did you feel like some of this was like speaking to you personally with just, Oh yeah, I mean, I identified yeah. with sort of this this figure a little bit. I mean, as you're a man of desire, yeah, it's certainly a man of desire, knowing mm-hmm. incredible sufferings, vertigos, and sickness, having my specters, right, trying to produce myself as a free man, irresponsible, solitary, and joyous. Now you know what's interesting is like when we talked about Twilight of the Idols, Nietzsche defines freedom as a kind of becoming responsible for oneself. Now, what's interesting, though, is that oh, I, right, think, right, yeah. I think he means it, though, in a different way in which he decries and talks shit about the Christian metaphysics of, yes. the, of the hangman. Yeah, yeah. I think so as well. And so I think in that sense, 
the way in which they describe what pre-man becoming irresponsible, solitary, and joyless, finally able to say and do something simple in his own name without asking permission. And we, we, we learned that in his own name is even just a turn of phrase because the name no longer designates an ego. Right. And that's part of the four great errors, right? In Twilight the Idols, which is, you know, making everything depend on an ego is one of those justifications for Christian revenge and blame and resentment and all these things. Yeah. So here it's interesting, this question of responsibility or irresponsibility in the Nietzschean or Deleuze Guattarian sense might actually have, might not, I don't think are in contradiction. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of read this as a way of, I don't know, it's kind of like the double bind, which they discuss a bit Ooh. here too in this chapter and so without that double binding i don't know there's that double bind in place as far as or I maybe i should say it as this this way i should phrase it like this that it's closing off becomings the mm -hmm. christian the christian metaphysics is oedipalized and it's you know snipping or clamping off the libidinal band at both ends right and bottling up desiring production Versus the gist of what this is saying is let's open up that let's open up becomings because those are being closed off by this sort of Oedipal Christian triangular metaphysics of, you know, the Trinity, obviously. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. interesting that they don't mention the Trinity. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, impl it's implicit, right? right. And, um, you know, and, and, and it's implicit in the way in which the chapter title we can't forget is the Holy Family and they are saying that the the new priesthood are the psychoanalysts, right? They're the, they've taken over. They're like the secular priests of our time. And, and so in that sense, it is highly implied that so much of what they are critiquing when they critique the illegitimate uses to which the three syntheses are put, they are, like we just said, you know, this question of an ego with a name is necessary in order to lay blame. Right. In order to punish, in order to, you know, measure the, the sinful or to attribute sins. And yeah. and that's part of the double bind that you were just describing. Right. You're you know, you will be responsible for your actions. Your your desiring production will be like linked yeah. to you for, for eternity and you'll right. be judged for that. I mean, even I mean, even Jesus is really, um, you know, some of the things he says in the Bible about if you have lust in your heart, it's just as sinful, right? I mean, you've already committed the act. The act of desiring itself is yes, yeah. the sin. Right. And, and, and that's, that's part of the... I was going to say the Ten Commandments are just off the top of my head feels like they're basically prohibitions against desire. Mm -hmm. right? Do not covet thy neighbor's wife. Right. Don't steal. Right? Don't kill. Don't kill. I have to look... Honor up thy father and thy mother. <laughs> Right. Yeah. That's that's part of the Oedipal, you know, um, exactly. I mean, obviously, yeah. obviously which, it's, I mean, that yeah, lends, yeah, which lends itself very well to this sort of fascist or kind of like the whole dynamic that they describe later in the chapter relative to the family in terms of how the I guess the socius is inscribed, the writing surface, et cetera. Right. And and of course, the first commandment, which, as you've been talking about, the if the name of God is the first simulation there. Yes. No other names, no other gods, no other simulations before me. Yes, exactly. Okay, you can't take the Lord of 
also can't take you're prohibited from taking the father's name in vain right you, <laughs> go ahead this is why you don't say yahweh right you're not supposed to at least in traditional hebrew thinking yahweh itself is kind of this this is why you had the stand-in like we talked about with baudrillard they have the stand-in of adonai right um as a kind of euphemism is it um this is sort of a side note so we can probably cut this out but i don't you may know this do you know anything about the old testament gods because there's i feel like elohim uh not elohim yahweh is more like connoted with christ or connotes christ more so than like jehovah or elohim which would be more old testament well jehovah is more of the is kind of a latinate elongation of yahweh they're basically the same name just with okay. different spelling conventions elohim is a plural noun for god a plural name for god a plural name. Uh, and and i believe in genesis Elohim, the name comes up first after the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil is eaten. And God says something like, they will become as powerful as us, something like that, right? And so Elohim is kind of, I think in that context, now see, I haven't read the Hebrew, so I'm speaking just as a Gentile in terms of my knowledge. Obviously, this would be someone like uh, maybe Chris would know more about with his background in Kabbalah or... um, I know Robin, you know, she's super interested in that kind of stuff. So this might be something we would need to follow up on. But in terms of Yahweh and Jehovah, they're the, they're the same name, but there's this whole list. I looked at the list when I was, when I looked up Adonai, there was this whole list of like names for God in, in the Old Testament. And there was, there was, it was a lot longer that I remembered. So that's something, I mean, it's obviously an interesting question, but I do think that the commandment saying, don't take my name in vain. I do think that's specifically around primarily that word Yahweh. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I was just thinking too, that on the cross Christ in Aramaic says the Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Right. The translation. Right. Now see, that's Greek though. That's an interesting thing. So, I mean, he's not speaking uh, because, you know, I mean, to, to be like a, super Bible studies guy. You need to know Hebrew, Aramaic, obviously Greek for New Testament, and then some Latin because, you know, the Vulgate was, was so important for disseminating. Right. And I'm sure even the, yeah. And even the King James, I'm sure has probably some, some Latinate kind of stuff in it as well. Yeah. I I would assume the King James is an interesting mixture of Latinate phrasing, but also the Elizabethan, obviously Elizabeth came after, but you know what I'm saying, that before one of the first iterations of modern English that we English speakers can fully recognize and understand, right? It's not middle English, Chaucer and shit, right. yeah, yeah. where you need, you need like a running, <laughs> you need running footnotes for the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that the, my God, my God, I'm not sure if that is a translation of the Hebrew from Greek, or if that's more of a... Well, I think that's the Aramaic, <laughs> which I don't remember exactly the... What Do you think that's language. Aramaic? Yeah. That's what Google says, at least, too. All right. Well, then then there it is. So, yeah, that that would be a question of what the Aramaic is um, referring to. I mean, it's also him of... calling back to Psalm 22. Interesting. Okay. I, didn't, I didn't know that. 
I didn't know it had relevance to Psalm 22. Well, I'm not surprised. David wrote a lot of Psalms that were not always the happiest. A lot of them are these things like, man, I'm such a bad person. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But some of them are like, rejoice. I'm so fucked up. Yeah, I mean, but some of the Psalms. (laughs) Like the meme, right? Right. Some of the Psalms are rejoicing, but a lot of them are kind of like, asking God for strength and, uh, you know, David did some bad shit. Oh yeah. You know, Bathsheba and all that stuff. Yeah. David, David did some bad shit and, um, and God forgave him for that. So I kind of feel pretty good about my chances, but you know, I mean, different rules for the father, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. For the chosen one. I mean, David was supposed to be one of the links in the chain, right? Abraham to to David, to, uh, it's interesting. It's interesting in that way how they talk about in this chapter that the unconscious is passed on from generation to generation too. And so that lineage, I don't know, that's kind of an interesting, I don't know if you're kind of thinking about that in this sort of Jungian Christ conscious evolutionary, whatever myth. And I'm not very schooled on, on Jung. So if I'm fucking any of that up, which passage are you talking about with the unconscious? Well, I'm just like through social reproduction. Okay. Well, you're talking about the, the family becoming, taking on the role of imbuing psychic repression, right? So taking on the, the sort of active, the agent role for social repression, right? Right. That makes sense. Yeah. That but, I mean, he, they, it's later on in the chapter that they, around the same sections that they do discuss that, something about the unconscious being passed from generation to generation. Yeah, I mean... Um, Psychic repression is delegated by the social formation, while the desiring formation is disfigured, displaced by psychic repression. The family is the delegated agent of psychic repression, or rather the agent delegated to psychic repression. The incestuous drives of the disfigured image of the repressed. And then social production would need a recording surface of the socius, an agent capable of acting on, of inscribing the recording surface of desire. That's the family it's a system of reproduction of the producers. And then, okay, and Dallas, at the other poll, the recording of desired production on the body of that organism is brought about through a genealogical network that is not familial. Parents only intervene here as partial objects, flows, signs, and agents of a process that outflanks them on all sides. At most, the child innocently, quote unquote, relates to his parents some part of the astonishing productive experience he is undergoing with his desire, but this experience is not related to them as such. Was that part of what you're thinking or, or no, they, I mean, they specifically say, I just don't remember exactly where it is. One of the big things that we see in their discussion of psychic and social repression, which is the seventh section of this chapter is a new way of framing the central role of family qua Oedipus or Oedipal agent in the interplay between social repression and psychic repression and how in that interplay the family as the recording surface is you know at the same time in league with these forces that distort desire and this question of how and to what extent and the whole regime in which desire being distorted that's going to be a central issue to chapter three, because what they will, what they will begin saying very quickly, and they've already started to now, is that it's precisely this distortion of desire and this wrongheaded claim. They even point to Freud, 
when Freud is uh, looking at Fraser, who wrote this famous book called The Golden Bough, and it was this big kind of sociological, mythological study done in the late 19th century. He, Freud will say that, oh, well, incest was prohibited precisely because it was desired. And for Deleuze and Guattari, this is a central misunderstanding or misrecognition by Freud. And Freud moves too quickly to accept this idea. And it kind of like infects the whole edifice of, well, well, of Oedipus. It's the Oedipus edifice that gets erected on this distortion. And that's why the conjunctive synthesis is, oh, so that's what I wanted. I wanted to fuck my mom. Of course, that's kind of the, of course, now I see my desire. It was just what in fact we're seeing is, is the distortion is the mirror play, right? It's the, it's kind of the hall of mirrors effect. And so that's, it's too, like Lacan can be very helpful here in this question of the distorted image of desire, right? Of the objet on. I got asked the question the other day about would I, would I tell Freud to go fuck himself, right? Or like to take all of his bullshit and, and shove it. And I had, I basically had to say what Deleuze Guattari in these sections point out are these three essential kind of elements of Freud. The first element is the exploratory, pioneering, revolutionary element whereby desiring production is discovered. So that's like the first part of Freud that you can see in, for example, like his three essays on sexuality where he's challenging kind of the morally accepted status quo about childhood sexuality is either not something we want to acknowledge or something we want to, or something maybe we just want to explicitly ignore and repress as adults. And Freud's like, no, look, we're born as little bundles of drives. We're polymorphously perverse. It's there from the start. That's, that's one of the revolutionary aspects of Freud. But then there's the classical cultural element, right? The theatrical side which we know how they feel about it in terms of describing the unconscious as a factory rather than as a, as a classical theater. The third side, the most disturbing, a sort of racket thirsting after respectability, which will never have done with getting itself recognized and institutionalized. A formidable enterprise of absorption of surplus value with its codification of the interminable cure, its cynical justification of the world of money and all the pledges it makes to the established order. Describing psychoanalysis as a racket is kind of interesting, right? We've heard of it kind of as a priesthood, and now we're hearing about it as a kind of cartel. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense with Lacan, right? Right. Like this short session, et cetera. Right. It, well, yeah, even more so. It's, it's highlighted, it's emphasized. And so they say all these elements were present of Freud, a fantastic Christopher Columbus, a fantastic Christopher Columbus, a brilliant bourgeois reader of Goethe, Shakespeare, and Sophocles, a masked Al Capone. Which I think is pretty brutal words, but you know we we already know reading um, some of Watry's solo work that he doesn't want to give up on the analytic machine, and even thinks that there are elements of Freudianism that have promise. So, like when they asked me, would I tell Freud to go fuck himself? I would say, well, keep that first element of the revolutionary exploratory moment of the discovery, and then obviously dismantle the racket because I think Guattari wants to see a kind of, even if there are quote unquote experts, schizoanalysis, I think he wants to see it disseminated broadly, 
rather than it being centralized in like an office on a couch and shit like that. Yeah. And then obviously the, the theater has to be overturned. And I, and I think that, that one of the ways they do this is not just through the metaphor of the factory and obviously bringing in Marx, but in the way they end in chapter two, and they already kind of work, they, they've been working with Arto, but I mean, Arto's theories of the new theater, the theater of cruelty. I think that that's one of the reasons why Arto is given this privilege, right? Is that, Arto against Freud's Goethe, right? I mean, there's this kind of the classical versus the quote unquote avant-garde theater. So that's what I would say, you know, keep one third of Freud and then the other two thirds we can, we have to critique and, and find new modes of processing, new modes of, you know, I think that schizoanalysis would be this polemic at least the, i mean obviously we've seen in anti-oedipus that part of what they're doing is a polemic right i mean like yeah it's not all polemic but part of there is this polemic against psychoanalysis and so like i think that obviously for schizoanalysis classical theatrical representationalism for the unconscious is no longer valid that's a whether you call it a bourgeois you know modus operandi or something you know it's and then obviously the racket has to be dismantled I wish I could find the passage. I can't, I can't recall what it is exactly, but there was something about how the unconscious, the drives or something like that is passed down from generation to generation. It's hard to figure out exactly the, the section you're talking about. I'm not disbelieving you. I just, I think it would be different than say Freud's discussion of the ontogenetic versus the phylogenetic, right? He, or maybe the part you're thinking of, is early on in the text when they bring up Freud's shit about the father, the primordial father. So, I mean, at the very start of what we read today, right, the recapitulation section, mm -hmm. we are told that the father died over a period of thousands of years. Well, well. And that the internalization corresponding to the paternal image was produced during the Paleolithic, yada yada, right? Like we're told yeah. this, they were told this big story, this this meta narrative about how consciousness and the unconscious came about, you know, through the the totem and taboo story, right? About the brothers ganging up on the primordial father. Yeah. And and then of course they turn to Nietzsche and, and talk about Nietzsche tells us about the death of God. He, he, he has 13, 12 or 13 versions of it to the point of making it a parody of itself because he's, he's kind of tired of this shit. And what we learn is that the death of God makes no difference for the unconscious, right? Because as we've yeah. kind, kind of said for, for months The unconscious now, is un indifferent to the death of God. It's indifferent to death. It's indifferent to negation in general, right? So obviously the death of God wouldn't be a special case. The announcement of the father's death constitutes a last belief, a belief by virtue of non-belief, about which Nietzsche says, this violence always manifests the need for a belief, for a prop, for a structure, Oedipus as structure. I don't know. I'm not sure if that's part of what you're thinking about, but, you know, I think that it would be different than how Freud tries to think of intergenerational trauma with this grand myth stretching back to prehistory, right? And it would probably be different than how Abraham and Torak discuss, they lament the fact that they don't have the case history of the Wolfman's father and grandfather and all that shit, right? Because they think 
it takes two, three generations to, to make a psychotic, right? They say this in chapter one, where it's like neurosis, that's mommy, daddy. Psychosis, well, that's, that's grandma, right? Or that's the great uncle or some shit. And um, so I guess this question of like inheriting or this even question of intergenerational trauma is um, I think would be put in, would be conceptualized anew for the Lizanguatri. I think I found that passage. Awesome. Looks like page 103. Okay. Oedipus is a means of integration into the group and both the adaptive form of its own reproduction that makes it pass from one generation to the next and in its unadapted neurotic states that block desire at prearranged impasses. But I feel like even that's probably, <laughs> doesn't feel like the right. Well, this is the very end of section five. Huh, um, and so you're, you're not wrong. We just wouldn't have read it for, for this. Wow, man, session. I know it's in here somewhere. I swear to God, it's in there. But I think it's important. I mean, like this question of, of initiation, right there, like Oedipus is always a group, is always a group structure or a group. There's no individual fantasy. There's no individual Oedipus. This is, I think, the important point that they want to drive home, that it's, that is a part of collectivity, right? And so uh, here it is. Ah, now I found it. But go ahead. Do you want to? Do you oh, just, yeah, just saying that's partly why they pause when Lacan says that Oedipus is linked to this question of segregation and how Oedipus is tied to, to setting up our little colonies, right, in the family and how yeah, it is yeah. this kind of importation of colonialism. And therefore, it's also tied to these this movement of supremacy, right? Yeah. I belong to the higher group. And for them, that is a, that is an illegitimate use of, of the conjunctive synthesis and is obviously, this is why Foucault is like, Hey, this is a book of ethics about leading the non-fascist life. You know, it's about searching out Oedipus and the nooks and crannies that make us want to believe in our, like, you know, ourselves as part of the, the chosen ones. Yeah. Let's turn to what, what you have. Okay, so this is actually, let me see, find the page. Okay, so 108. Okay, good. So I was close. It is section six, but go ahead. It's going to be, I believe, this top one or two lines down. The organized body is the object of reproduction by generation. It is not its subject. The sole subject of reproduction is the unconscious itself, which holds to the circular form of production. Sexuality is not a means in the service of generation, Rather, the generation of bodies is in the service of sexuality as an auto-production of the unconscious. Sexuality does not represent a premium for the ego in exchange for subordination to the process of generation. On the contrary, generation is the ego's solace, its prolongation, the passage from one body to another through which the unconscious does no more than reproduce itself in itself. Indeed, in this sense, we must say the unconscious has always been an orphan, that is, it has engendered itself in the identity of nature and man, of the world and man. The question of the father, the question of God, is what has become impossible, a matter of indifference. So true is it that to affirm or deny such a being amounts to the same thing, or to live it or kill it. One and the same misconception concerning the nature of the unconscious. Yes, that was it. <laughs> Tear my hair out. <laughs> Not no, finding I mean, that fucking passage. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really great. I, I think that is great. I like this, this term because for Freud, sexuality 
or the pleasure attached to sexuality, the premium for the ego, right? That is the lore that nature kind of weaves in to trick our drives or to use our drives to lead us into the trap of reproduction, of social reproduction, right? right. Literal generations, uh, you know, uh, yeah, you're supposed to for the species, you're right? supposed to, yeah, you're, there's like an expectation that you will reproduce. It's, yes. And it's so, it's so pervasive that it's almost, people can be oftentimes shocked if one does not wish to reproduce. Yeah. If you ask an average person or if like that comes up in just a friendly conversation, right. People will be like, oh, why? You know what I mean? Right. Isn't it? Yeah. There's sort of this assumption that all predicated on ego as well. And narcissism. Right. Uh, the narcissist ego, which is kind of funny too. In the, there's actually a lot of Sterner sort of overlap in not only this, I guess, this discussion of ego, although I think the instance of the German trend word for ego is different. It's not the Freudian ego per se. Right. It's, it's the Einziger. Yeah. Dreinzig, I believe. There's like that aspect, but then their critique of the law as well. The way that the law operates in this kind of false triangle, too, is, is another little kind of sternarian view of how this law sort of negates itself, which I think is interesting. Well, yeah, or at least for Deleuze and Guattari, the law is, they kind of put it that the law has every need to deface and distort that which it prohibits. This is precisely why they can't agree with Freud when he so quickly sees the law of prohibition against incest and says, oh, therefore incest was desired. They think that that is, you're taking the law side, right? You're it's fucking a cab, right? You're, you're being a cop, you know, you're, you're assuming because they even have this version of the, of the categorical imperative that they, that they mock where they say, what if everybody, you know, fuck their mom or what if everybody kept their sister for themselves and didn't didn't allow for you know women to be circulated and that is like the category that is like a mockery of the category imperative via incest prohibition it's this this question like well if everyone fucked their sister then then there would be no families or some shit right and it's and it's so um when you you need that moment of irony or, or humor to to see in a different vein how misguided it is to to see what the law prohibits and to think that that was that was what was desired that's what desired production produced which was fucking fucking the mother or, or hoarding the sisters right yeah that's you know that i think is um but here it, it is interesting right that they turn freud on his head or stand him upright <laughs> that it's it's the it's the generation of or the auto production of the unconscious that is secured that that is that sexuality is merely the auto production of the unconscious. And they and they will kind of bring up this again when they discuss delirium, when they bring up Artaud and his his stuff about the conquest of Mexico and the the first what is they say, like the first thing to populate the body without organs is races, nations and ethnicities, something like that. Yeah, that's our peoples peoples, I believe, is the yeah. specific quote. It's kind of interesting that to go back to that genealogical path, I guess, did they say, wait, did they say desire? Okay. So the unconscious is like sin. So we genealogically through Adam, we, through Adam, we are condemned through sin and what is prohibited is desire, right? What is prohibited by the father is desire. Effectively, that's sort of the 
prohibition against incest, right? Is the law of the father almost. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, it comes, it comes from the father we've said is right. Right. It's, it's a question of if it's the, the whole Edenic myth is interesting because you can see in it, obviously with the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the outburst, the spontaneous outgrowth of consciousness, which can't be explained. Right. I mean, it takes consciousness to try to look back to an origin for exactly itself. to simulate an origin for right. itself. Right. Which, which is, is kind of, which is really like, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is what I'm going at really getting at as far as when I'm saying simulate the name of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the same time, one needs the differentiation of consciousness itself is From, needed. So like the splitting of the subject into the splitting of the subject is a necessary component then is what that kind of sounds like, which would be more like Lacanian. So I don't know. I'm confused as far as how this applies with Deleuze and Guattari. Well, I mean, yeah, you know, sticking with your, your metaphor, how can one have the unconscious without the conscious preconscious system, you know, in Freudian terms, you would need that differentiation in order to, I guess that's what I'm saying is because prior to the outgrowth of consciousness language and these other things, the symbolic, as Lacan would say, do you even have the unconscious speaking, properly speaking, or, or do you well, have the right. well, Edenic, yeah, idyllic bliss? Yeah, because Lacan would say, I think, I don't think Lacan attributes, he says, as speaking beings, so there's a differentiation between us and animals, and then animals would exist in sort of the real, they're in complete, they're right. not, there's no mediated real for its immediate, I don't know, phenomenology? Right. Now you even phrase that kind of shit. I will leave out what Simon Doan says, because for him, you know, animals are thinking for animals is extraordinary while quote unquote living is ordinary. And it's the other way around for humans, right? Yeah. It's ordinary for humans. Thinking is ordinary for humans, but living is extraordinary. Ooh, nice. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting um, because there he, he kind of tries to, to, to like walk the tightrope that doesn't allow him to fall into various either phenomenology or psychoanalysis, right? He he's trying to like, whether he does it correct. Cause this is just a little footnote, but, I, but sticking to this. Yeah. I mean, like barring the fact that in the myth, Eden and Eden, Adam and Eve quote unquote speak before they eat the, the fruit right. there, obviously something changes, right? We know they become quote unquote aware of their nakedness. This notion, this notion of self-recognition and recognition, right? The play of, which really I think for Lacan, right, is when desire finally comes into the scene. When yeah, right, as right. speaking beings with the possibility of misrecognition, the object of TIA, the mirrors, et cetera. Before that stage, you can't really even say there's consciousness or unconscious. Yeah. It's almost like they're merely automatons uh, that, that God Kinda, has. Yeah, yeah. That, I think that's Lacan's view, yeah, of animals. So with... The outgrowth of consciousness, too, in the myth of Adam and Eve is also the outgrowth of sexuality, because we hear God say, well, you're going to have pain in childbirth, and you also have to labor in the fields, right? stuff like that. So there's the division of labor, there's obviously sexuality and genitality, and the possibility of birth. And so I think that, yes, really, you're right, because your main, your, your main point was that the auto production of the unconscious is kind of original sin. 
Yes, right? and, yes. and we pass we pass right, that right. on. Which yeah, because in Christian theology, at least in like Southern Baptist theology, right, it's we inherit original sin. There's a blood element, a genealogical element involved. We inherit that all through Adam, which is it goes back to you know the point about the Ten Commandments as well. Yep. About desiring production being because desiring production is a threat. That's the big thing. Yeah. If it makes so much sense for the Bible to be this. Its unconscious application is to be a system of control. It's to oedipalize. It's to cut off the libidinal band to halt to halt the revolutionary production of desire because desire is a threat to to hierarchy. A lot of it is bound up with the identity of the the Israelites, right? I mean, so many of these laws beyond the Ten Commandments, for example, the book of Leviticus, which wrongly gets applied today for all kinds of moral prescriptions in Christianity, including against homosexuality and these other things. You know, those laws set forth in Exodus and, and Leviticus specifically are about certain guidelines for the Hebrews, the, the Israelites to retain an identity as they are struggling to find a homeland, right? As they're kind of nomadically wandering. And um, so without those, those laws, as you said, because you, you, you were putting it, I guess that I'm saying the opposite side, right? I, I'm kind of devil's advocating. Uh, <laughs> your point being the revolutionary machine had to have been stalled by these laws and, 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 and only and tightly circumscribed. Otherwise, the lineage of the Israelites would have blended in with all kinds of other peoples or, or been taken over by other uh, states and laws, right? They would have just I mean, assimilated. That's, that's probably the good D&G reading of it. I was thinking more broadly speaking, uh-huh. Almost going back to like the conversation I've been having about how things like potlatch are an attempt to virtualize mm-hmm. conflict, and it's this sort of system to to arrive at a type of equilibrium relative to the social body. Because if everybody's fucking and fighting and murdering, then we can't have. There's too much revolution, too yeah. much desire, right? If it's nothing but unrestrained machinic desire, then there's no the band can't cool and you're in constant flux, which has positives in terms of, I mean, that's like the schizo, right? Because there's this sort of, it's almost like the primordial earth, right? That's a ball of the polymorph, the egg in a sense, the body without organs, because there's all kinds of becomings, but it can't just be that, right? Can't just be deterritorialization. There has to be a, a re-territorialization. Really along the same logic that I've been using relative to our discussions of mouse and the gift and potlatch and this as a way of, as a systematic way of sort of keeping society or from overheating or from being total chaos, right? Because if you, if desiring production is completely unrestrained and it's nothing but deterritorialization, then, then we can't have any... There can't be, I mean, it might be great for becomings and so forth, right? Because there's potentiality to do whatever. There's unlimited potential. But at the same time, in terms of any kind of stability and reproduction of desire or the unconscious, which is, right, that's what's at stake here. Right. So we have to create these systems in order to police desire in a way, I don't know. It's all about, yeah, it is ultimately all comes back to sort of, I guess, regulating desiring production and finding the right equilibrium or the right way to do that without shutting it down entirely without without the universe going cold 
Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Um, they themselves say Oedipal desires don't have to be repressed, right? They're the bait. They're the bait and switch. The Oedipal desires are the, are the disfigured image of desiring production. So they're not the ones being repressed. And they say, uh, besides, it is doubtful that incest was a real obstacle to the establishment of society right. as the partisans of an exchanges conception claim. And I think this is precisely why someone like Baudrillard and someone like Mauss Obviously, someone like Nietzsche is very important here for establishing their critique of they will critique those who claim exchange of primary in chapter three, right? When they go through this notion of marking um, interesting desire, mm-hmm. desires being a sign of strength that plants flags and bodies, as they say. But um, they say the real danger is elsewhere. If desires are pressed is because every position of desire, no matter how small is capable of calling yes. into question, the established order of society. Okay. I know I, I saw you post this. Yeah. 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 Not that desire is a social on the contrary, but it is explosive. There is no desiring machine capable of being assembled without demolishing entire social sectors. And, you know, they go on saying, Oh, this was the other quote that I, I think you posted. If a society is identical with its structures, then yes, desire threatens its very being. It is therefore vital importance for a society to repress desire and even to find something more efficient than repression so right. that repression, hierarchy, exploitation, and servitude are themselves desired. It is quite troublesome to have to say such rudimentary things. Desire does not threaten a society because it is desire to sleep with the mother, but because it is revolutionary. And this is exactly what you were going going into as we had a little hiccup in our internet so i thought that was that was great and 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 so you're right i mean like with the evolution of territorial machines as they will call them from the primitive territorial machine to the despotic to now the capitalist right we see that there are different ways of coding overcoding decoding flows there are different ways in which the socius, the limits, there are different limits we're going to encounter that constantly are in motion. And for uh, for nomadic people like the Israelites who are constantly sort of under threat of losing their identity, it makes a lot of sense why so many of these, lo- like even like a simple I mean, law- the mark, the marking yeah. of the body via the circumcision in particular, yep. right? That really, that really, really gets to the heart of sure. that I mean, that is itself this. I mean, that's libidinal economics. Yeah, that, that <laughs> is the compact, right? That's the contract with God, right? That that is the mark of being yeah, a chosen it, person. But it also has, we know it has certain hygienic benefits too. Right. But I think you've well, discussed this before too. Like it's, it's not an easy thing to fake. You can't sort of simulate a foreskin exactly, right? You know what I mean? So you're or the lack of one, your physicality will automatically will like sort of betray you. Mm-hmm. That is, oh, I mean, think about how talk about a despotic signifier if there ever was. one. Yeah, know? no. Yeah. I mean, um, the violence of the social on the individual. It's a traumatic thing, too. It's interesting, too, since we're on circumcision like, and, and Abraham, you know, uh, Guattari coins the term Erstadt based on. Abraham eventually settles in Ur or helps to make it uh, a great city, if I remember my biblical knowledge correctly. So I think that that's, that's where Guattari sees the 
he uses that example of Abraham and okay. the, you as know the what I'm saying? Yeah. As, 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 oh, and that'll be again, chapter three, but it's, it's already important to discuss here because yeah, the, the question of the shibboleth in the Bible, the shibboleth is a linguistic thing, but that's still a bodily performance, right? Our ability to say, pronounce certain words. And those who are in the in group, they are cool. The out group gets slaughtered. Right. And as you said, uh, you know, the practice of circumcision itself, it's not something that can be faked. That absence of foreskin is the overwhelming presence of the chosen phallus. Right. Or the, the, the chosen imaginary phallus. All right. We've talked about penises for, for enough <laughs> for the moment. Oh, man, um, I, could, I could go off. On we could talk whole, about penises all day. I think it's um, super interesting that it literally inscribed on the body. Oh, yeah. I mean, with via the um the circumcision just to wrap back around to original sin since we're kind of you know i know that circumcision wasn't used to be an exclusively hebrew practice a way of signifying belonging a way of signifying the continuing the uh, one part of the convention with god right the the compact the the, god's chosen people as well marking god's chosen yeah and then, and then, of course, in our day, it became a kind of it became kind of exported and generalized for uh, at least for the West, just as a kind of status quo practice for uh, for doctors and and all of these things. Because I said part of it, part of the excuse being hygienic, but I think it's more the fact that it was it's not like a life saving procedure, right, right? You know what I mean? And and so in that sense, it's kind of aesthetic. In the sense of a narcissism of of the, and, and it's possibly Christian. You know how how, how many things the Christians uh, you know just inherit without thinking about it. They think that they're the true chosen people. So to a certain extent, to appropriate oh, circumcision, yeah, yeah. you know yeah. what I mean? They're they're like yeah. they're continuing the promise of Abraham unconsciously and, or consciously. It's hard to say. I mean, I, yeah. maybe maybe some theologians or some church historians would would know. Uh, but even they, you know, even their conscious whatever would belie the body without organs operating underneath. And so I was thinking or desire about, operating rather. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking about how you mentioned Southern Baptists and we were talking about the unconscious, it's auto production and how that is kind of the mark of original sin to a certain extent. Freud himself talks about desire and the unconscious and the drives and sublimation as the greatest curse but the greatest blessing of humankind like it's his greatness and his suffering i think they even quote in chapter earlier in chapter two something like that right the castration or whatever the fuck or oedipus is i think it's oedipus but you could just as well say castration is like it's like man's greatest suffering but but his greatest triumph or some bullshit i was thinking about how in the catholic church because of the way that they think about original sin especially you know babies are babies are, are baptized because the because this theological question of what happens to an unbaptized person for them that's like it's like black or white right they're they may not go into like the worst circle of hell and dante but they're in limbo or some they're in some weird nether world depending on who you ask where um their soul is at jeopardy of of not reaching salvation i think for protestants at least in my little non-denominational church, you know, baptism was always a conscious 
thing that right. one had to will and yes, one had exactly. to desire. Yeah, same. It was like a sensual act. Right. As a display of obedience to God, because right. Christ was baptized by John the Baptist, I believe, mm-hmm. loosely. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's how it was. At least broadly, I think that's the Southern Baptist kind of modus operandi as, as it pertains to this. That's a very wide distinction, you know, between like, oh, this baby's out the womb. We got to, we got to, you know, sprinkle some, some holy yeah. water versus you as a Southern Baptist, you may have heard this stuff that in Greek, the word baptism literally means submerge. You're like underwater. Right. So yeah, exactly. even the Catholics, are like, are they really baptizing? <laughs> you know, there was always these tiny little polemics. Well, yeah, yeah. But I guess the point being like, these are, these are again, different. I mean, we could go through all kinds of different rituals, taking the sacrament and things like this, eating the body of and blood of Christ, right? All of these are, are just more, you can call them bodily metaphors, right? Or they're, but they are these, these signs that the body goes through. Obviously it'd be, it'd be different. You can always lie and say you've been baptized if you haven't, but, right. but the covenant is still with God. So you may trick other humans, but in the last judgment or whatever, you know, you're not going to be able to fake that. Right. It's the spiritual form of the circumcision for, for God. Yeah. To a certain extent. I, you know, what's kind of interesting too, like along this lines, I mean, the way to kind of quilt this, there's two things that sort of quilt together here relative to this discussion. One, I was thinking even early on that, you know, it might be easy to think about or use Blade Runner 2049 as a vehicle for a little bit of a discussion because we're dealing with a couple of different things. We're dealing with one, obviously the Oedipal, the Oedipality of the narrative, right? Because we have the question being, okay, can replicants reproduce themselves, right? Yes, yes. And obviously K begins to think that he is the son of Rachel and Deckard. He's a, actually a, I guess, hybrid human, or I don't even know what, whatever you want to call it. Like, or a kind of immaculate conception type. Yes, deal. yes, right. They're not supposed to be able to reproduce, but they have, and he is the offspring so he believes. So we are. So he believes, right? And this whole narrative, the sort of generic narrative, sort of lends itself almost, almost in this kind of, I want to say almost in the archetypal way. Anyone could sort of attach themselves to that narrative and feel like they were protagonist of life, let's say, in that sense. So right. I think K, in many ways, is kind of like this stand in for the viewer, the meta narrative capital, right? The logic of it is. You're the main protagonist of life. Go out and fulfill your desires through capitalism by entrepreneurship, by consumption, etc. You are the chosen one. You are the one that's going to be, yeah, you're the chosen one in a sense, right? Is this kind of narrative that all, that's sort of seeded out, right? And he kind of takes that, he kind of is, takes that on. And then at the end, it's almost this denouement of when he finds out, oh, okay, I'm not actually the the chosen one, but he still achieves his sort of human moment and his self-sacrifice, which doesn't right. quite align with the rest of my point. But no, I mean, I, I think it's I think it's important to note, though, something about the artificial, the whole notion of reproduction, artificiality, the Oedipus Triangle, all sort of are in this cauldron of this sort of stew 
relative later in 2049. So I thought it might be an interesting way to look through and because not only does it deal with Oedipus, like I said, but also the reproductive side and the synthetic human, right? Because the Jared Leto character. Right. Yes. The architect. Right. He sort of reproduces the synthetic life in the bag. You know, it's an age old trope for the man to appropriate the, the process of physical labor reproduction and sort of subdue it to his own desires. I mean, Socrates does this with philosophy and Diotima by appropriating the metaphor of pregnancy for how the old philosopher impregnates the young boy with philosophy. And, you know, that kind of appropriation is is seen in, in Leto's character. I have the book right here. So Isabel Millar says in her book, uh, The Psychoanalysis of Artificial Intelligence, in Blade Runner 2049, the work of reproductive labor therefore becomes a site of contestation. Owning the means of production or reproduction would supposedly allow the replicants to escape the capitalist extraction of surplus value from their bodies. And of course, I could probably read a bunch of other stuff from her book. Uh, yeah. Shout out to Isabel. But, you know, there's something about, as you were saying, there's something about how how Marx talks about labor, how Deleuze, how Marx talks about capital, how Deleuze and Guattari talk about capital, specifically with the conceptualization of miraculated how the celibate machines are miraculated on the body without organs and things like this, how surplus value itself is this phenomenon of, of miraculation. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, I mean, that's kind of what's at stake with the possibility of replicants reproducing and this, and, 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 and the, the drama that we're following, you know, with, this question of whether or not I am one of those miraculated beings, right? Whether I, I am immaculate, you know, in that sense. I feel like I'm just remembering, I think we might've had this a similar conversation in the, uh, the machine unconscious episodes. Oh, I know okay. we have discussed 2049 before just came back to me. Yeah. And we may have discussed a little bit with, with Isabel. And I think even, yeah, that too. Dr. Millar, she's earned it, but she allows us, to be on a first name basis. So have you rewatched that recently? No, I was just thinking about it. Yeah. I rewatched Blade Runner probably like in May. No, probably like around April. And then in May for the episode with Isabel Villar, I, I rewatched 2049 and I remember enjoying it way more than I did the first time. I think the first time I wasn't quite, and I'd been like a decade since I'd see Blade Runner. So in 2049, you know, I was, it was a little bit disparate for me. Wasn't yeah. able to like put everything together. So rewatching it, you know, sometimes you got to do that for for these movies. It's not like it's the most conce conceptually complex, but it's it, but the, but it's very deep, right? It's it's a lot, and it begs for rumination. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. What toy did Kay have? It was a it was a wooden horse, right? A little wooden figurine. Yeah, because that was one of the mythical elements that made him think that he was the chosen one, so to speak, this offspring of this that his memories were real. Right? Yeah, yeah, that he yeah. could find that he could find the referent out in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that would prove that those memories weren't were real. That would at least prove to a certain extent 
I mean, if yeah. the conspiracy is large enough, you could easily plant that there. But you see, and then we we see that Joy had, she's the one who's creating these memories, and she's putting some of herself in all not of jo- these. Rooms. Not Joy, but the I forget what her actual name was. Oh, I'm sorry. Joy is his actual automated. No, or, that's not who I meant. You're right. Three D uh, girl, fuck. girlfriend. Thank you. Or whatever. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for correcting me. Not. <laughs> I don't remember her name. She was a doctor. She was the doctor that had to be kind of quarantined right yes yes exactly and i forget her name now and i'm not i'm tempted to look at dr Millar's book but i'm not going to yeah she's like putting some of her own little memories into yeah probably her. unconsciously too mm-hmm. i would say or, or no she no she i think she actually consciously yeah is it adds designing reality. right yeah. is design okay yeah yeah so that, it actually is. that little piece of her past gives the memories a kind of non-fakeability, if you will, right? Yeah. It gives them this patina of authenticity, so to speak. Right. Which is sort of needed. There's, again, this kind of goes back to that same thing about representation, because like they say in the first Blade Runner, if we gift them a past, then it makes it easier for them. They're easier to control, for one. Mm, yeah, it stabilizes them, right? It's kind of similar yeah. to this whole notion of the band itself, right? Otherwise, you're sort of you're too polymorphously perverse if you don't have a past, because then you could be anything, but you can't be anything. You have to be this. You have to be right. what the social sort of wants you to be. Right, right, yeah. Here's where I want to. What I was sort of was wanting to quilt a bit was this notion of simulation relative to Baudrillard, but also how Deleuze and Guattari say here, they're talking about how social repression becomes desired. This was really yes. good too, the, the inhibition to revolt becoming unconscious. That's, wow. Repression itself becomes desired. Yeah. Right. That desire is so explosive, as they say, that social reproduction needs doesn't just need repression. Repression alone won't do it, right? It needs repression, exploitation, hierarchy, servitude, I think is what they say, right? Back to the quote that I said about 30 minutes ago. That's what has to be made to be desired. It has to right. find something stronger, find something more efficient. I think that's a better that's a better way of thinking of it. More efficient than repression is for it to be desired. That's that's and they're still thinking through this question, right? I mean, because they even come back to Reich and they say Reich is on track for a materialist psychiatry. He's one of the first to say you can't, the answer that that the masses were tricked doesn't work, that that is not acceptable. They say like he went further and further and tried to build these boxes to trap this infinitesimal or microphysical the organ the organ and so he's written off as a coup freud is given a pass uh, okay good i'm glad you right? explained this <laughs> for for freud is given a pass for all of his speculative shit right you know whether it be because he is quote unquote the founder his edible shit uh universalizing that he's given a pass where did they say that i don't know i definitely pulled that quote because i was like what the fuck are they talking about yeah, Reich is, is written off as a kook, right? Because he goes down that schizophrenic line of flight trying to 
scientifically prove a speculative thesis. I mean, Freud himself tried to try to dialectically interwork speculation and observation. And that leads him to, from observations, not just his self-analysis, but starting with it, but the more observational data, quote unquote, he accumulates, it leads him to confirm this Oedipus hypothesis. And for Deleuze and Guattari, it's not that Freud just made it up, it's that he conceptualizes it wrongly. He speculates about it wrongly as though it were a given in society and rather not something to be explained. And that's something that we're a product of social oppression with which now Freud is more and more aligning himself. So Reich is written off as a loon. When they say Freud is given a pass, I think that's humorous because I think for you and I and a lot of the stuff we see, I mean, I try to be charitable to Freud when I can, especially online when I see people just being like, oh, fuck Freud. He's just all about fucking the mother and the father. And and Deleuze Guattari say that that's Freud like at his worst, right? That's like Freud at, you could say at his weakest or most complicit, but that's not all of Freud. And did you find perhaps the- Yeah, it's on page 117. Awesome, great. Let's see. It's about halfway through the top paragraph. Yeah, so this is why- well, I guess we could read the whole thing. It's clear what psychoanalysis expects to gain from claiming the link where Oedipus will be the object of repression and even its subject through the intermediate of the superego. From this, it expects a cultural justification for psychic repression, a justification that makes psychic repression move into the foreground and no longer considers the problem of social repression as anything more than secondary from the point of view of the unconscious. See, I think here this is where Reich's interesting because he, he does take seriously the question of social repression. That is why critics have been able to observe a conservative or reactionary turning point in Freud from the moment that he gave an autonomous value to psychic repression as a condition of culture acting against the incestuous drives. Wright goes so far as to say that the crucial turning point of Freudianism, the abandonment of sexuality, which would astonish and horrify Freud, comes when Freud accepts the idea of a primary anxiety that supposedly touches off psychic repression in an endogenous fashion. Consider the 1980 article on civilized sexual morality. Oedipus is not yet named here. Psychic repression is considered in terms of social repression, which gives rise to a displacement and acts on the partial drives insofar as they represent in their own fashion a sort of desiring production before being exercised against the incestuous or other drives threatening legitimate marriage. But it then becomes evident that the more the problem of Oedipus and incest comes to occupy center stage, the more psychic repression and its correlates Suppression and sublimation will be founded on supposedly transcendent requirements of civilization at the same time that the psychoanalyst plunges deeper into a familialist and ideological vision. Now, this is kind of backing up Reich here. And on the next page, the strength of Reich consists in showing, having shown how psychic repression depended on social repression. So that's Reich's strength. That's the thread they want to keep on. That's a corrective to Freud's complicity and complacency by assuming social repression is a secondary question, somehow not as important as, 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 psychic. Uh, as psychic repression. Because Freud wants to try to circumscribe, even as he gets older and he's delving into these anthropological questions, like in Totem and Taboo and these other things. Still, I think when he does that, he wants to always subordinate the anthropological to the psychological. Precisely because he, he wants to say that's the one sphere that I have observed empirically, blah, blah, blah. He wants to feign 
he wants to keep up the pretense that he's still largely arguing like a scientist. You know, he's still concerned about that veneer of scientism. I see something similar with Lacan at times when he turns to Caesarian linguistics or Levi-Straussian structuralist anthropology, things like that. This Reich was the first to raise the problem of the relationship between desire and the social field and went further than Marcuse, who treats the problem lightly. He is the founder. He is the true founder of a materialist psychiatry. Which makes me want to read Reich now. Yeah. Not that um, I, I mean, I always wanted to, but just because of the mass psychology of fascism. But you mentioned, did you mention a different word? The, function, the function of the orgasm. They even have a footnote or two for it. The function of the orgasm would be also interesting. Yeah. I think it would be cool as well to look at, you know, since they do mention Marcuse, I think Eros and Civilization. Yeah, that would be probably the text. Yeah, another one. Although, you know, One Dimensional Man is of interest as well. But yeah, as far, I think uh, more related to libidinal economics is Eros and Civilization specifically, although I'm sure it plays a role. They go on situating the problem in terms of desire. He is the first to reject the explanations of a summary Marxism. Too quick to say the masses were fooled, mystified. I think that's interesting, right? That they, False they are consciousness. Po- they're pointing at some, some Marxists. Yeah, that could be one way of, of... But since he had not sufficiently formulated the concept of desiring production, like yours truly, right? Like mm-hmm. DMZ. He did not succeed in determining the insertion of desire into the economic infrastructure itself, which already threatens... Freud's tentative distinction between anthropology and psychology, right? Or Marx's distinction between infrastructure and superstructure. The insertion of the drives into social production. Consequently, revolutionary investment seemed to him such that desire moving within it simply coincided with an economic rationality. And you got to really, the emphasis on rationality there, right? Mm -hmm. Because desire is not inherently rational. I mean, that's just... As to the reactionary mass investments, they seem to him to derive from ideology which again, they want to bracket and then totally eliminate in a thousand plateaus. But in, in anti-Oedipus, they want us to bracket the notion of ideology because it is in itself mystifying and confused and poses or is posed with poorly posed problems. So the reactionary mass investment seemed to him to derive from ideology so that psychoanalysis merely had the role of explaining the subjective, the negative and the inhibited without participating directly as psychoanalysis in the positivity of the revolutionary movement or in desire and creativity, which is, again, schizoanalysis, right? It can't just be a negative analysis. The fact remains that Reich, in the name of desire, caused the song of life to pass into psychoanalysis. He denounced in the final resonation of Freudianism a fear of life, a resurgence of the ascetic ideal, a cultural broth of bad consciousness. That's all Nietzsche right there, right? We got a lot of that from... Um, Twilight, Twilight of the Idols. And I think here, bad, I would translate this as bad conscience, but I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> but he says, better to depart in search of the organ, he said to himself, in search of the vital and cosmic element of desire than to continue being a psychoanalyst under these conditions. No one forgave him this, whereas Freud got full pardon. That's the one. Yeah. So Reich was the first attempt to make the analytic machine and the revolutionary machine functioned together. In the end, he only had his boxes, right? His paranoid boxes. That point right there from, obviously, in my opinion, from Guattari, if we can say who's speaking here, yeah. that's obviously um, 
Guattari's contribution, mm-hmm. I think, to Deleuze with, you know, Deleuze himself said, you know, in 69, he's writing Logic of Sense. He ends with this fascinating theory of the phantasm in terms of nonsense and the surface of language, blah, blah, blah. And it's a, it ends with this Lacanian impasse. And he's like, I met Guattari and Guattari was light years ahead of me. He's talking about design production and blew my mind. Right. You know, so I think that Guattari saying, I love how they are able to give such praise to write and say, you know, here's where he went wrong, but he had, he had the right, you know, yeah. he had the right line. He was, right. he was, he was more right than, than, than not. And to say that he's the first to see the interplay between the revolutionary machine and the analytic machine, I think that the Guattari definitely wants to continue that, that thread. Do you think this is where this vitalist kind of vitalism, at least seemingly pops up too? even relative to Reich or Reich? Well, yeah, I mean, like, you know, it's interesting because the search for the organ is a kind of search for the origin of life in vain, in the vein of modern physics experiments. Right. You know, it's this, it's to go beyond the boundaries of sense perception itself. I mean, like, but potentially you'd be able to measure this kind of vitalist, influx right this vitalist flux if you just devise the right machines if you just devise the proper wiring and the and and you develop instruments that were sensitive to this force that somehow they call it a paranoic quasi-schizophrenic thought experiment you know but but reich feels that i mean whether that's delirium or that's it's hard to say. I mean, you can say it's a vitalism, but it's this interesting vitalism that that's not in the traditional sense. In the traditional sense, vitalism is opposed to mechanism and it's in its explanatory, quasi-complete, closed system of concepts. <clears throat> um, you know, Bergson is some of the Deleuze always goes back to, to to kind of thread this needle of vitalism and mechanism, right, with like creative evolution and these other things. And all the problems that arise with that, the conflict. And I think that Reich is trying to do the impossible. And it, I mean, he didn't succeed. I don't know if theoretically it's impossible at all, but, but, you know, it's a kind of impossibility of this notion of submitting vitalism to a kind of positivism, to a kind of, uh, you know what I mean? To a kind of scientific method that I think is at least praiseworthy, even though it's, crazy at least <laughs> yeah. from our perspective because he failed if he yeah. had succeeded of course he'd be a fucking you know he'd be einstein or right. on the same level and i think that guattari is trying to warn us to warn us about this way of dismissing that attempt that reich ended up with this earnest attempt it's not he's not as far as we can tell he's not trying to grift yeah yeah you know what i mean he's not selling snake oil you know, he, his desire to prove this. And there are, there are experiences we all have where, whether we're looking at the sublime of nature or we're in a psychedelic trance or moments of clarity or moments of mystical oneness, whatever we've all, 
save Freud who said he's never had the oceanic feeling, whatever. We've all had those moments though, where we're like, okay, some, some force, unnameable, perhaps we call it God and call it chaosmosis, whatever the fuck you want to call it. You all, we all have the, those moments where we're like, okay, something is, something is, is coordinating with the flows. Something is splicing the series together. Right. Yeah. And I think that for Reich, he thought he could potentially measure it. Right. That it's an admirable attempt. And so to just dismiss him and not to call Freud out for his quackery, for his batshit stuff, mm-hmm. and yet to salvage them both and to say they both have highly redeeming thoughts and, and inclinations and tenacities, you know, that kind of, we see something similar in, in Nietzsche, who knew very well how to praise and very well how to detract and, and problematize those he praised. I see this happening here with Reich and even more so with Freud, who's obviously one of the main names in here. But, you know, giving full pardon to, to Freud for his Oedipal quackery is, I think there it's, it seems kind of criminal if, if Reich is just stricken from the legacy of psychoanalysis yeah, or thinking in general. What do you think about this component? Because one element or one thing that I wanted to mention was that this fake displacement, this fake displaced image of desires, the fake displaced image of object for desire and how that could potentially be the little conjunction between anti-Oedipus and um, symbolic exchange and death relative to simulation and simulacra. Because I think possibly there you know you could probably explain what Deleuze and Guattari are getting at here better than I do they does that make sense do they use the word fake yeah good here let me control a fake display gotcha yeah yeah see uh, I thought I thought they had I just wanted to make sure maybe I should read this whole section about psychic repression because it'll contain the quote and what page is this on this will be paid. Uh, it may not be 119. Let me double check then, actually, because the numbering. Okay, yeah. So it's definitely 119. Okay. Psychic repression distinguishes itself from social repression by the unconscious nature of the operation and by its result. Even the inhibition of revolt has become unconscious, a distinction that expresses clearly the difference in nature between the two repressions. But a real independence cannot be concluded from this. Psychic repression is such that social repression becomes desired. It induces a consequent desire, a faked image of its object on which it bestows the appearance of independence. Strictly speaking, psychic repression is a means in the service of social repression. What it bears on is also the object of social repression, desiring production. But it in fact implies an original double operation the repressive social formation delegates its power to an agent of psychic repression, and correlatively, the repressed desire is as though masked by the faked displaced image to which the repression gives rise. Psychic repression is delegated by the social formation, while the desiring formation is disfigured, displaced by psychic repression. This fake displaced image, I thought, kind of goes to what I think of or what one could think of relative to how Baudrillard poses simulation and simulacra. And it's through the signifier kind of getting into Lacan and they talk a little bit about the signifier or the sign here 
as well. The sign is a sign of strength, right? Desire is a sign of strength, something like that. Well, they say here, here's, I don't know, this might be in the opposite argumentation would be, it is a question of the recognition of an unconscious desire and not of this desire satisfaction. Right. Recognizing the desire is tantamount to setting, desiring production back into motion on the body without organs in the very place to where the schizo had retreated in, in order to silence and suffocate this production. This recognition of desire, this position of desire, this sign refers to an order of real and actual productivity that is not to be confused with an indirect or symbolic satisfaction. And that in its stops and in its starts is as distinct from pre-Oedipal regression as from a progressive restoration of Oedipus. But I don't, that's not quite the one I was looking for. No, it's still good though. So like either Oedipus is, is the, is sort of the, uh, the blessed holy land of sublimation in a Jungian vein through mystical identification, right? Through religion and morality or religion and morality depend on Oedipus analytically in the Freudian sense. This is the, this is the double bind of, um, of Freud and Jung in, um, in the eighth section. But again, this is interesting, right? Because they want to discuss the sign outside of the structuralist linguistics that is dominating Lacan's theoretical framework. This is why, I mean, we've already talked about it in the previous three episodes with this rhetoric. I call it a rhetoric. I'm not being polemical here, but this, this rhetoric about desire being real, right? And it produces in the real and of the real it's not symbolic imaginary yeah because the whole problem is the the symbolic oedipus on one side and the imaginary oedipus on another and either way we're kind of caught oh yeah okay so those are the two ends where it's binding us okay that's the double bind interesting well that's that's one form of it that's their way of discussing the oedipal double bind right okay that, that imaginary oedipus on one side structural oedipus symbolic Oedipus on another, right? There's, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You're, you're still strangled. Also recalls chapter one, just to touch back to that about, you know, the statement Schreber has a solar anus and it, and it works or something like that. Right? Yeah. And it works. Believe, and rest assured us. it were. Yeah. yeah. Rest, rest assured it, it works. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, that's the problem with, with Freud's reading of Schreber. He, he whitewashes it clean of all of the, the racial populations that dominate his fantasy, well, his deliria, but also his fantasy space. And by over-determining fantasy as imaginary or symbolic, you crush the lived experience that Schreber is, is going through. You know, unless by you, trying to universalize, yeah, okay. And and it's as though, and, and I don't think Freud is trying to say Schreber faked it, that his memoirs are yeah, that's true, are fake. That's a good point. The same way with it, he wouldn't say that his patients are like a hysteric is is faking. Right. Now he may come to doubt certain elements being just how certain elements may be distorted or reactivated based on how memory works. That's true. But he would never say that they're that that like the subject of his analyses are, 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 are trying to fabricate everything whole cloth. Right. I mean, sometimes when lying shows up, it's it's symptomatic of certain things. But 
you know, so Freud takes seriously Schreber's word, takes him at his word, and yet at the same time misses the fundamental dimension of, of the lived experience. And, um, and that's, that's kind of why Deleuze and Guattari have to mount this polemic against Lacanians, if not against Lacan himself, by, you know, by putting the real on one side and the symbolic and imaginary on the other. You know, I think that this was one of the part of the interests of what we were discussing with Todd McGowan and, um, and obviously within a Lacanian framework or God forbid a Hegelian one too, <laughs> you know, there is a lot of, there's a lot that you would have to shift to get everything to align. And I don't think you can necessarily make anti-Oedipus align with the whole of Lacanianism. You can't even make the whole of Lacanianism align with itself. We, we know how much Lacan changed and Freud too. We know how much Freud evolved and changed his ideas, even though certain structures and were, were kept at, at the base. Um, but, but this, this attack on the signifier, which, which we know again is, Oh yeah. For Lacan, uh, it's all the signifier. Yeah. I mean, with Deleuze has his own way of problematizing the signifier in logic of sense, which I'll leave to aside for now, but he doesn't go half as far as Guattari, who, you know, we know is really interested in the a-signifying and a-subjective aspects of assemblages of the unconscious of desire. And this is why on 111, they say, from the moment desire is welded again to the law, we needn't point out what is known since time began, that there is no desire without law. Right. This, Ooh, that's is like interesting. A, this, is, this is like a commonplace. This is like a Lacanian commonplace. Yeah. The eternal operation of eternal repression recommences the operation that closes around the unconscious, the circle of prohibition and transgression, white mass and black mass. But the sign of desire is never a sign of the law. It is a sign of strength. Puissance. And who would dare use the term law for the fact that desire situates and develops its strength and that wherever it is, Wherever it is, it causes flows to move and substances to be intersected. And Nietzsche, they're quoting Nietzsche here. I am careful not to speak of chemical laws. The word has a moral aftertaste. <laughs> I think it's pretty good. Yeah, um, from the moment desire is made to depend on the signifier, it is put back under the yoke of a despotism whose effect is castration. There where one recognizes the stroke of the signifier itself, but the sign of desire is never signifying. It exists in the thousands of productive breaks flows that never allow themselves to be signified within the unary stroke of castration. It is always a point side of many dimensions, polyvocity as the basis for a punctual semiology. That's Guattari speaking, in, in my view. If we play the game of who's speaking. In psychoanalysis and transversality, which the translators lovingly footnoted in this chapter, Guattari has kind of like these unpublished, I say unpublished, they were published later, but they're like these kind of notes for a for what we hear as uh, signs particles, right? That's but point signs is another Guattarian phrase, and it's the the little essay it's not really an essay but the the piece is called from one sign to another and he's trying to show how the sign is built up from points and like spots and it's very experimental interesting. very interesting that topology stuff yeah. i think is fascinating for sure yeah so i think that that's part of what guattari is is seeing that you know lacan wants to try to talk about and that's the unary stroke right the 
a, a unary stroke would be like, um, you know, like putting a notch on a tree, mm-hmm. right? Say, or like when when you were little and your parents like took a pencil and measured your your height with your back against the wall, right? Shit like that, right? It's this quasi self contained signifier, hence unary, right? But uh, Guattari is trying to like undermine some of this, right? I mean, because he was obsessed with the con. We we know this. We've talked about this, and I think that that's that obsession is the only thing that prepared him to drive right. him to say yeah, exactly. say, <laughs> say these things about yeah. oh for sure undermine the dominance of the signifier precisely yeah because this is maybe a paraphrase but there's the sign of desire is never signifying yeah i mean that's in guatry when he says we've heard this from time immemorial that no desire without the law i mean that for him is is uh you know it's not to go back to the bible but you can see someone like paul saying that right about um you know the wages of sin is death you know, wages way- of desire, the wages, yeah, of signifi- the wages of signification. Right. I mean, like the way Paul talks about sin is very, very akin to this language about desire and this question of, uh, of the law and, you know, Jesus coming to overturn the Mosaic law precisely in order to extricate sin or produce the alpha bong that wherein sin and the law are no longer like in this deathly opposition, right? This is the whole wagering on Jesus' resurrection. You know, if, if Jesus rose from the dead, all men rise from the dead. That's the universalism that Paul tries to, to erect, but he's but but still desire is thought of as as in this dialectical wedding with the law. And and uh, Freud too inherits this when, as I said earlier, he says, Oh, well, incest was prohibit prohibited because it was desire. And Guattari doesn't want to have any of that. I wonder if this binding desire to the signifier too has anything to do with simulation in Baudrillard. Maybe. The, I, I mean, the signifier is in many ways, right? It's like a simulated, it's simulating the real uh-huh. if you just think about it at a certain register, I guess. What I don't understand is how little Baudrillard refers to the imaginary. Because I would feel like simulation would be more firmly ensconced in the imaginary than the symbolic, but maybe it just straddles both or something. I don't know. It seems like when Lacan and Guattari discuss the imaginary, ethology comes up Mm -hmm. and this question of like the bird nuptials and the courting rituals and the play of desire based on you know my own self-awareness of my body based on other bodies based on other human bodies birds based on their the other the other entities of, of their species right you know the or taking on refrains and and you know they have to live collectively in order to you know be able to reproduce all the bird songs of which their species is capable and intense toward you know all this stuff i'm not sure if baudrillard is as interested in in that question of the ego qua body in the world that embodied play of mirror effects i think he sees the mirror as you said as he himself seems to show more in terms of the symbolic right more in terms of this question of i guess we'd have to read the mirror i mean you've read the mirror production right 
Uh, I, I skimmed it for our, our stuff. That? Gotcha. I, I haven't read, read that one. Read reviews of it. <laughs> I haven't um, read that one because I know it's more when he was a bit more in the more Marxist framework. He's sort of stepping, advancing things a bit further out and uh, doing his own thing more so with symbolic exchange and death. Roland Barthes, the way he discussed signifiers, I mean, he, he comes closest to an appreciation of the imaginary when he writes his World of Wrestling essay. But if you read closely and you aren't just looking for surface conjunctions, you see that even when he's interpreting these wrestlers' bodies, all symbolic. All of it is it has symbolic weight. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, like, Baudrillard does deal with Lacan, and obviously he had read some, but it's hard to say what the imaginary right is for him. Yeah, is doing for him. I agree. Because yeah, even like really, the even like the graffiti little. is it's all yeah. symbolic. Yeah, um, right. It's very you know, strange. He, that's the level at which I think he's wanting to situate himself. The I mean, like for example, the the World Trade Centers. Yes, he starts with look at the image they cast and they, and they show duopoly monopoly. So, but it, very quickly, the image is always going to, going to be subsumed in the symbolic weight that he's interested in. What else do you think here? Cause it, I think we've covered a lot of the chapter other than I think maybe bears discussion of schizophrenia as a process. We have plenty of time to go into that later. Yeah. I think they're still only hinting at that. Their main thing is that the schizophrenic as a clinical entity, the catatonic body is created based on this, this halting of the process, whether at a false goal or whether making it spin around itself, right? We'll, we'll hear more about the schizophrenic process, but we can start talking about a little bit of it and maybe wrap well, up today. Let me ask this then and see if this has any relevance or if it's from just making shit up, but I felt like there was, okay, so they mentioned relative to the literary machine that the writing itself is the analysis, right? So they say it's something along the lines of, you know, let's not speak of the psychoanalysis of a text. The text itself is the psychoanalysis. To me, that felt a little bit in line with this process as yes, with process in opposition to representation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what does it mean versus what does it do? Right. Like, I think that's sort of getting hinted at, perhaps there. All writers are sellouts. The only true literature is, you know, packing an explosive. Yeah, putting an explosive in the package, right? Like, which, when I put that quote up there, somebody posted a picture of uh, Ted Kaczynski, which I thought was kind of funny. That's not necessarily what they mean, right? Because we quoted those passages about how desire is not antisocial, but it is explosive. Right. Right. I think that that's more in line with what they mean than uh, sending mail bombs. But, but yes, I mean, <laughs> I mean, like, I think that, you know, they would say that, you know, I've been repeating this ad nauseum about Guattari's statement that I just love about how you know, Proust, et cetera, Kafka were the preeminent, Arto. yeah, the preeminent schizoanalysts. Yeah. That Arto, when, when, when Deleuze says he wouldn't trade a page of Arto for all of Carroll, I think he's in line with Guattari when they end the second chapter by talking about him and by talking about how 
you know, they quote him like it's like uh, what you have to plow the you have to plow the crap of thought and language. Isn't that how it goes? Writing is so much pig shit instead of being a process that plows the crap of being and its language transports the weak, the aphasics. Okay, so, so to get to your point, yes, I think it's important to remind the, the, the listeners what Guattari says in The Machine Unconscious when he starts his discussion of Proust, where great literary writers, and we've already heard them name two dozen or three dozen, right? Henry Miller, D.H. Lawrence, Henri Michaud, Beckett, Joyce, Kafka, Artaud, Proust, etc. I could go on. I'm sure I've left people out, but you know, for Guattari, there is a tendency in the West to separate literature from science, from thinking in, in general, right? To make these arbitrary or semi-arbitrary generic distinctions. And I think that for, for Guattari, that like, no, great literature itself has schizoanalytic import. As you said, it's not about what it means, it's about what it does. And here we see the same kind of impasse when they're like, oh, when the literary establishment says, oh, Artaud's not, he's not a, a great writer because he was schizophrenic. Or no, obviously he wasn't schizophrenic because he's a great writer. And Elizabeth Artaud <laughs> are like, are like, they're not going to have that fucking double bind. It's precisely because he was schizophrenic that he like saw yes. uh, and was able to push language to this past this limit. Uh, this right. is, this yeah. is the first time they've used the, I'll call it a metaphor, this analogy of the breakdown and the breakthrough, which they'll bring back up in a thousand plateaus. But, you know. Um, yeah, madness isn't necessarily an illness. That's And they're quoting Foucault when he's talking about madness being beginning to be and in the future being dissociated from mental illness, right? Madness being this, you know, productive force, this breakthrough. Doesn't Foucault specifically as well call out the figure of the oracle as, I've said this before too about there's a yeah. certain being touched by God or having an access to this sort of divinity. Yeah. And that's also in the Phaedrus when Socrates talks about madness as being. I mean, Schreber goes to that relative sure. we got to read that kettler essay on schraber and um and quantum physics yeah so point. so you know i mean when they when they're discussing how Artaud sort of pushes language past its syntactic and grammatical inertia so to speak right i mean i think for for them that is like a kind of height of of literature this is where they kind of They've already kind of said it earlier in the book, but they reiterate it in this chapter that that what social oppression wants or what it is content with is for the literary machine to to just spin its gears and not mm -hmm. to be functioning together with the analytic machine and the revolutionary machine. Yeah, I mean this is this is why they say that what they they play off a number of writers. Let's say them. Breton against Artaud, Goethe against Lenz, Schiller against Holderlin, in order to super-egoize literature and tell us, careful, go no further, no errors for lack of tact, right? The edible form of literature is its commodity form. So that's, that's kind of like why they say that even psychoanalysis may not be as dishonest as a certain type of edible, quote-unquote, literature. A certain type of literature that bothers nobody. Think about 
for as badly written as it was, think about the big uproar. I say uproar, but the kind of fascination with something like Fifty Shades of Grey. And you you look at whether it be the plot or even the, the narrative structure or even the actions described and the characters. Cons- compare that to like fucking the Marquis de Sade. It had this thing where it had this veneer of being like sod, sodi, sodian, but it's just it's yeah. just sod light, super light, right? And therefore, not even in the same universe. That kind of literature is a way of simulating a kind of transgressiveness, light BDSM or whatever the fuck, and romanticizing it, and it becomes packageable and digestible for a wide audience it, it becomes an identity it becomes a, a whole theater a way to do this whole simulated theater yeah it, it and it's and it's completely timid but it's seemingly transgressive it's seemingly like yeah, yeah. outre and well, risque i'm even thinking about you know going back to the 80s movies i've been thinking about this for so long just because you hear the refrain now about wokeness in film or whatever. Right. And I just remember movies like the Goonies and fucking Ernest goes to camp. For example, the antagonists are real estate developers. Interesting. There's all these iterations of this different narrative where it's like, you know, something is happening and it's these kids or what, you know what I mean? A lot of times it's the kids that have to find a way to deal with this, yeah, this capitalist sort of thing that's going on and fighting against real estate developers or whatever. I think that's just sort of interesting that though that is in the media, like you said, it's there's no connection to any kind of revolutionary or analytic machine or anything. It's just kind of producing this mirror of reproduction. It's a kind of light movement of catharsis sometimes. Simulating this, yeah. Simulating dealing with the simulating the, the, the revolution, honestly, yeah. Yeah. simulating the revolution in a in a micro capacity. as a way of as a way of warding it off too, right? Yeah, exactly, precisely. Yes, yeah. It's the small doses, and that's why they they kind of say that there's more dishonesty in in the in these acts of literature that that have much. It's it's kind of like the the velocity of ideas, right? There's a much higher velocity of the ideas in this kind of mass produced, easily consumable literature than there is in the, uh, the analytic concepts. You can talk shit about, and this is why they continually say, psychoanalysis didn't invent Oedipus. It just reinforces its movements. Freud helped put a name on it. And again, it's a literary sticker that to some extent doesn't even do justice to the like, to Sophocles, so I think the point of the play, and, and especially if you consider the trilogy as a whole, so Freud kind of himself helps to reduce and repackage a literary notion. But when they say Oedipus's first literary or primarily literary and only like secondarily psychoanalytic, I think they do have this, this notion that there are, there's a typical major mode, standard dominant mode of literature that is very reassuring and and this is one of the, I mean, you could even say this about something like Game of Thrones, because one of the, the interests of Game of Thrones is the dark fantasy element where, and it's, and it's low fantasy so that magic isn't, isn't solving every problem. And the heroes that you start to root for die 
pretty unjustly in, in and all these things. But even then, there's all kinds of different tropes that are mobilized that titillate us, but don't necessarily. And yeah, this, I mean, it, this is an interesting, dis- interesting discussion because Martin sort of intentionally defies genre conventions. Yeah. With their kind of, you know, their, their emphasis that there's something more insidious about the normal neuroticizing Oedipal dominant mode of, of literature, which I think for them, they would, this is why they say true literature is, mm-hmm. is got the explosive in the package. I mean, it comes back to partly what you said about its use versus meaning. And I think that the way I was trying to describe this to a last week was, I think you would get this because you have the English literature background. You know, we, we learn about all these different fallacies. We learn very quickly that, for example, biographical exposition is a no-no, right? You're, if you try to write an essay where you're discussing the author's childhood and upbringing and the events in their life and all this stuff, all right. of that has minimal value if you're not dealing with the work of art. Right. I mean, I think that for them, that's, that's the, the problem with like, for example, Proust, some of it, some Proust's initial receptions where, you know, his, his mommy fetish or he, he's secluded and blah, blah, blah. Like they were trying to talk about Proust's lived conditions. And these days and age, we have more and more and more information about the authors than we did, you know, even a few hundred years ago. So, you know, like the effective fallacy, right? It's, what, what was the poet feeling when, when he or she wrote this? All that is just bullshit. It doesn't get to the heart of desire. It simulates it, though. It simulates it in a way that is misleading and distorting. When you ask, what was the poet thinking? Were they having a bad day? You know, some shit, right? You put all of this pseudo-psychological nonsense. Yeah. And you cover over the literary work. And I think Nietzsche is a great example of this, reading him, because he, he scrambles a lot of those coordinates, even if we know more about Nietzsche's biography than ever. And, and so, you know, Laura Well describes Nietzsche as, as a political machine, and we have to kind of get in the midst of it, in the thick of it. And if we stay, if we try to stay like the dis, disinterested reader and just be like, oh, well, Nietzsche, you know, went crazy so you can't take him seriously it's the same thing i hear that I, I heard this shit all the time where it's like i would get warned like oh well nietzsche you know he he was a nihilist so you shouldn't read him you go down a dark path which again it's not even right not like, even accurate the term, yeah, yeah. term nihilist <laughs> or uh, or like or it's like the arto shit oh well he couldn't have written great literature because he's schizophrenic he wasn't schizophrenic because he wrote great literature it's the same thing shit with nietzsche you hear i would hear all the time like no, Nietzsche's not a philosopher. He's a he's a writer, right? Um, or or Nietzsche went crazy, so none of his ideas, all of his ideas are suspect. Right. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? That kind of thing is that's how even the work of art itself becomes edipalized and is, isn't even packaged that way. We we bring all the tools to to repackage. Edipalize it. me, yeah. Yeah, we I mean that's that's it. We project all that shit. We can't easily protect all that shit onto any work of art, including Proust or whatever. So we, we have a way to botch the schizoanalytic monographs, right, that, that you brought up. We have a way of ourselves getting in the way. And I think that, that that's part of why they're ending with this discussion of literature. 
Because if we ask ourselves, what is anti-Oedipus? Is it also included in this, this discussion of the literary machine? I think we have to say yes. We've already said yes for Leotard. <laughs> right. I, you know, I don't know why we would say Deleuze and Guattari don't have what they call style or the absence of style. This, Yeah. It's certainly not co- as committed to a specific aesthetic yes. as libidinal economy seems more singularly focused on that sort of deranged flow of desire, which yeah. they seem to be a little bit more methodical. But, you know, like I opened the episode, you know, as much of a polemic as that is, that's just a, an incredible way to conceive of, of a revolutionary, of, I don't know, re- revolutionary desiring production. You know, you can ask the question for any philosophical exposition, even the driest analytical philosophy and or analytic philosophy, whatever you call it. You can, you can even the driest thinker like Kant, you can, you can ask <laughs> after the literary elements. There's a conscious choice to write the way Hegel did. There's a conscious choice to write the way Lacan did. I say conscious choice, but there's also an unconscious motivation and unconscious flow. Yeah. Cause style isn't, isn't fully merely conscious. conscious. Right. Yeah. But I mean, with, with someone like Hegel and Lacan, you could say that there is at least some influence of their choices for writing in a way that simulates a type of exercise for the reader. It is a mental athletics. It's a fucking (laughs) contest. And um, this is why Lacan can say like, Oh, I don't know what the fuck I was writing. Right. He can do that. (laughs) And people get it. And they're like, well, I don't know what you're writing either. (laughs) Even when Lacan's writings aren't merely ramblings of a madman, you know, he's simulating a madman. He's kind of simulating an asshole, but, you know, he's, I don't agree with him. And of course, you can't say the whole truth. So there's a half truth, right? Uh, yes, my writings are kind of, but, you know, but if you stick with them, maybe, you know, there, there's a training that has to go into, we have to like learn to like retrain ourselves and also like to forget certain habits and, and what Gadamer calls them. Um, horizons of prejudice that we bring to texts. When I struggle with reading Baudrillard, and I tell you that honestly, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not trying to feign that I can just pick up any text and understand it. There is this right. like, there's this like working through that we, that we have to do. And, you know, Leotard demands that in his own stylistic way, Proust demands it too, right? Because, you know, so much is going on and yet it seems like none of the narrative is moving forward necessarily, or it's moving at a snail's pace. And really so much of it, you know, is going on without us even noticing. There's a kind of sleight of hand going on. But it's the same with with Oedipus, right? I mean, they, like, stylistically, they do have these little bursts. And then these retreading and and recapitulating and reiterating. And then these bursts. And, And that's, it's a very energetic style that requires us to have a certain patience and have a willingness to, like, to retrace our steps, right? Walking this, this labyrinth as we're moving more and more towards the origin of the quote unquote origin of the, of Oedipus, where, where does, what is the soil from which Oedipus grows? And that's what we're going to get to discuss in chapter three. One quick thing I was thinking about relative to this, relative to art, etc., and Oedipus, I was thinking about, and this may just be kind of too surface level, but 
I think it's interesting to think of in the context of Kanye's whole Donda thing and reconstructing his childhood home. And like, it's all being dedicated to his mother passing away and, and all of that. Okay. Are you aware of this at all? I know about people fangirling over Kanye. So I hear about the shit on the timeline. I'm glad people get excited about things. I'm not going to like, you know, let I'm going to let people enjoy things. So I, I've like osmotically figured out. I mean, I've been hearing for weeks. When's Donda going to drop? He built this replica of his childhood home inside okay. inside of Soldier Field or whatever. Okay. You can see here the house. I mean, the house has this cross. Yeah. So it's a little bit Oedipus. I don't know. Maybe that's a surface level, but right. There's like this simulation element relative to like Synecdoche, New York, and that simulating building the the life size model of a of a house. I don't know. There's something interesting going on there. Also, his you know his own mental state. You know, I don't know if it's fair to speculate as someone who's not a mental health professional, but I think you know you could at least sort of question what's going on with uh with Kanye's mental state. I mean, he's, he's admitted to as much himself. So, you know, he's, he's been pretty open at least at times about that. Am I wrong? But yeah, I don't know. There's is something interesting, the spectacle of it, the, I don't know. It's he's maybe the one person that's sort of capable of pulling off some kind of shit like this and people still being like, you know what I mean? He goes for the big, you know, he goes big. Are you saying if, if nobody if, else is fucking doing this shit? Like, if, you know, if someone if someone else built a replica of their home in <laughs> the guise of a church, that people might ask more questions. Is well, that what I, you're saying? I I don't know if I would go that far because this could be just more simulation, and that's the thing. That's kind of the question. Like, how does how do you how do we create this synthesis with those machines? How do we link up the literary and the analytic and the revolutionary machine? Because it's not. Something that, you know, I assume it's probably something that probably can't even be consciously done. It has to be sort of, I think maybe there is a conscious element, right? But significant amount is going to be unconscious. Yeah, I mean, your, your question about the spectacle is interesting, right? Because he could, as you said, obviously be simulating Oedipus mommy worship. On the other hand, you know, it's the spectacle. So he could be playing with us. On the other hand, he could love his mother. I mean, I understand a certain nostalgia for my childhood home. I'm not yeah. saying that, that I would, if I had the means and wherewithal, that I would necessarily recreate it, but I can imagine myself in that mindset. Certainly. That if I had the possibility of doing it, that I, that I would. And if his mother just recently passed, you know, that is a lot of, there is, you know, the process of mourning is, is different for us all. And this is this is also a tribute to her. It's not necessarily just a spectacle of Oedipal, you know, bullshit. Although for us, it well, can consciously have that. or unconsciously, like, yeah, it may not be consciously, but well, I guess the thing is like because we want, I, right? We want, don't they say we want Oedipus? We want Oedipus. Yeah, yeah, to yeah, us? yeah. But but you you seem to be wanting to ask the question: What does this mean? You're right. That, yeah, that he yeah, did this. Yeah, yeah, right. And You're I, hundred percent right. Yeah. That's kind of why I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm being gotcha. wishy-washy right. because okay. 
And, and but you also prefaced you're it right. by saying I'm not going to diagnose him, and you already kind of knew that you were asking this question. Obviously, it shows that he has the material wherewithal to do this. We know that. I mean, you know, what does this function for him? Well, you know, I know people want his music, and he. It seems like he's good at making music that inspires people and that people enjoy. Mm-hmm. And if this was a part of the musical machine to keep those cogs lubricated then that's really how it's functioning. If, if it keeps him, you know, in a, it keeps him doing Kanye without hurting anybody else or, you know, breaking down. If this is part of the breakthrough, I, I fully support it. You know what I mean? Like, I, cause I'm not going to ask, what does it mean? I, yeah. you know, it's, it's not as interesting. To- that's a good point. I have that habit of course, you know, as an English major of <laughs> falling right. into that trap. Right. And, and, and I think that we can leave that to the tabloids and the media. Right. Because they're going to have a fucking field day about that. Yeah. About what it means that his mother died and that he's doing this for her and blah, blah, blah. OK. Yeah. But, you know, not all of us, but most of us have mixed or nostalgic or very intense feelings for our parents. Right. Whether it's social oppression, psychic oppression, all that shit that we just discussed. You know, or if that's somewhat also biologically ingrained, right? And we, you know, are all that shit. If we ask what it what it means, it's not as interesting as saying, like, how does this function in the Kanye machine? Right. Yeah. How does this function in not just as because it's not, I mean, now at this point, as you when you bring up the spectacle, it's not just a musical machine, although that is an integral part. Mm-hmm. But you know, the Kanye machine is this kind of larger than life spectacle. And so it really doesn't mean anything singular or it means everything and therefore nothing. Right. I mean, you can you can kind <laughs> yeah. of you can kind of do that. Is there anything else you wanted to that you felt was really important about this section of the text? No, I think that the pulling Kanye out of left field was a was a nice way to like. Well, it does kind uh, of everything together. It's all yeah. these different streams of. Simulation yeah. and Oedipus and mental health, madness, etc. Creativity, oh, yeah. Yeah, literature, yeah, yeah. commerce, exchange, libido, right? All of that. I do wonder when the picture with Marilyn Manson was taken because so that was the actual. Wasn't he canceled or is? is oh well, yeah. There's just... a big there, <laughs> there's a big controversy about about him being involved and also the baby as well. Ah, well, Marilyn Manson's. Um, indiscretions at least as far as i know were much much more serious than than the babies not just dis- i'm not downplaying the baby's inflammatory statements but as far as i know marilyn manson's got a lot of sexual assault allegations on him correct yeah or just all kinds of fucked up things with uh, evan rachel wood okay groomed her effectively at least that's how right. she how she characterized right. it i mean if we're gonna i'm not i'm not gonna try to like differentiate between like who's yeah. worse, but it right. seems like legally, if not morally, uh, Marilyn Manson right. seems more problematic. Yeah. Again, for sure. That's maybe but, uh, not just as interesting, like, but it's interesting. It, what is interesting is the, that he specifically chooses Marilyn Manson, obviously being aware of this likely like, he should probably would likely be yeah. aware. He would have had people around him too. That, yeah. that, that, that would have been looking out for her. His best interests, I one assumes. Um, it's interesting. He's wildly, well, he's wildly successful, so he can perhaps get away with this um, without even taking 
much heat. But yeah, I mean, obviously those, I mean, obviously those two problematic individuals, I'm just going to say that loosely, are also in themselves, shown themselves to be musically creative and wildly creative and successful in their own right. So, you know, I'm not going to judge Kanye per se, uh, or even ask like, what does it mean that he worked with these two people? Right. Um, That's the, that's the thing that I automatically want to go to is what does, what, (laughs) what does uh, Marilyn Manson's presence signify to the cross Right. Home, et cetera. Like, right. I mean, it's a question that begs itself. Yes. It, it, it begs <laughs> for that for itself to be asked. Joyce himself talked about Finnegan's Wake and Ulysses and how and he may be lying and, and bullshitting, but how he put all this this shit in to to confuse and, and elicit confusion from literary critics for decades to come. You know, and that's because, again, literary critics are going to have that reaction where they're going to say, what does it mean? Yeah. And Joyce knows that. And that's a part of his machinery. And that's part of the brilliance. Obviously not the only part of his brilliance. So I guess that's that's as far as I'll go with. I'm not going to I'm not going to feign any moral outrage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, refrain at the moment. That doesn't mean that I don't have my own like uh, questions, but but just, you know, those are just curiosity questions and. They're not as interesting. You know, I, I really do think they're not as interesting, even if they're the first and the loudest to come to mind. But yeah, I think that can that can wrap us up, I think, if you if you're feeling like we tilled the ground, the soil well enough today. Yes, sir. In that case, this will be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. See y'all next week. Of which is